of the show before the show podcast from MILB.com. Hi. Hello there. How you doing? Sam Dykstra. Oh, are you are you, you talking you. directly talking to, to me? You. Oh, okay. directly right. to you. You could I have been addressing first, the... it was sort of like a universal like to the listener, but then it was to you. Yeah, well, uh, and you, you know, everybody needs pivoted in my brain. Yeah, everybody needs somebody to talk to. So I thought we were just giving space for them to respond right. and have like a, you know, a legit chat exactly. between the two of you. And I was going to leave it out. There's nothing wrong with silence and allowing others to fill the silence. Totally. But yes. I am here now too. How are you, Tyler? Ah, uh, you know, we're uh, we're all existing in a vacuum of weirdness, but uh, healthy and doing okay, and uh, hopeful that we'll have baseball sometime soon. And um, it's going to be June next week, and that's you know generally very exciting. It's a little weird right now, but uh, hanging in. Yeah, I mean, uh, June is a big month on the calendar. Usually, anyways, because we have the draft coming up, and there's usually so many things going on in minor league baseball in June. Short season usually opens up around then. Obviously, not looking like the case right now, but um, it seems like June is going to be a big date at which we decide whether baseball is going to come back and what it's going to look like and all that. So, um, it, this will not be any normal June, that's for sure. That is the truth, uh, but hopefully it'll be a, a productive one and a good one for all of us and all of you. And uh, with that, we welcome you into this week's episode of the show before the show from MILB.com. He is Sam Dykstra. I am Tyler Mon, um, and we're hanging out this week with uh, a trio of really good interviews. we got a great conversation coming up here in our next segment. Josiah Gray, who's the third-ranked prospect in the Los Angeles Dodgers organization and baseball's number 67 overall. Uh, we had a, a lengthy conversation with Josiah that covered – pretty much everything that we could possibly cover with him and uh just the the latest in what i feel like have been exclusively terrific interviews like we're all in a a difficult spot these players are all in difficult spots um with no baseball right now and all of it but i feel like the interviews that we've done since the quarantine started have all been so good and josiah gray may be the best among them although i feel like i say that every week with another interview that's great um but if you're a, a dodgers fan or just a baseball fan at all uh, he's a, a really fun prospect to keep an eye on and a really engaging and really good dude uh, to have talked to on the show today. And um, got some other stuff coming up. Benjamin Hill will join us. Andrew Batterano will join us uh, a little while later. And uh, other than that, I don't believe there is anything to cover in this segment. <laughs> well, I mean, we'll literally just use this as the introductory segment. That is okay. The The good thing about this, and if you were expecting this to go long this week and you probably looked at the runtime and wondered, oh, this is long, but the intro seems short. It's because Josiah Gray goes really long in his answers and goes really deep in his answers. And um, as Tyler mentioned, normally during the season around now, we know the time we have with players is finite. They're either trying to enjoy some downtime away from the ballpark or they're on their way to the ballpark and they only have so many, many minutes to talk to us. All of us right now are kind of sitting around waiting for baseball, and that allows us to get into deeper topics, but also allows them to answer more fully. And Josiah Gray was such a perfect example of that. Um, you know, taking our, our questions and uh, going deeper with them and providing lots of context, which, you know, we love as writers in our day job. Um, but I think it's great for people at home to hear, not just fans, but future fans and um Obviously, the whole point of this show is for you guys to get to know these guys before they get under the bright lights of the major leagues. Um, but to, to know him the way you will after this interview, I think it's special for all of us. And, uh, yeah, it's a reason why we go along with this, because we have the time now. They have the time. And we want to give you guys as much information about these guys as we can before they, they reach the show. 
Totally agree. Um, and you were you're a better man than I, in that you did not take the bait to trash talk me about the fact that you won uh, one of our stream games. I mean, you know, videos don't lie. Videos are on the internet forever. So I don't even need to say anything. YouTube is doing the talking for me. Okay. Okay. I see. Wins one game. All of a sudden is just <laughs> immensely confident. Also, I liked how at uh, MILB tweeted out yesterday that this is now a series. When the, they posted the stream, or I, on Monday, I guess, uh, when they posted the stream link, we're recording this on Wednesday, the 27th of May, um, it was uh, series, Tyler leads 2-0. This wasn't a series before. Now you get your first win. Now it's a series. Is that what we're saying? I, I told you last week this has always been a best of five. <laughs> you are currently leading 2-1. That's great for you. But when you blow it, it's just going to look horrendously awful for you. You know, so. I, uh, I don't like your guff. <laughs> Take that. Um, but, uh, yeah, Sam got a win. We did American League versus National League squads. The uh, the, the stream is up at MILB.com slash podcast. It will also be up on Facebook coming up on Friday afternoon if you missed it. And, uh, yeah, every once in a while, all, all great dynasties fall eventually. Every blind squirrel finds a nut. You're the blind squirrel. I, I was the dynasty. Well, I was going to say, yeah, you had a dynasty, but like Rome, you were built in a day and then you fell in two. Like what? <laughs> you didn't even get multiple eras. Rome you wasn't just got... built in a day. That's the whole phrase, Sam. No, no. You were built in a day and you were destroyed in two. I'm sorry. Uh, I don't know what that means. Um, but uh, we've got some other stuff going on uh, on the site, some really good Stories that are up, historical pieces, uh, road to the show pieces, uh, all kinds of things. Benjamin Hill will be on a little while later to talk about his uh, his latest league fun facts and all of that. We also have some news uh, which is not on the site. It's news that just came out yesterday, but it's uh, we we so uh, I don't even want to say so often. Every day, all of us, I think, to a certain degree, have to look to find things to smile about and to be positive about and to feel good about. And there is some really good news that came out of uh, the minor league family this week, which is that uh, since late March, since I believe March 27th, Oakland Athletics minor league coach Webster Garrison has been hospitalized uh, with COVID-19 and for 22 days of that time was on a ventilator. Uh, His fiance, Nikki Trudeau, has been posting updates on social media over the last several weeks uh, and she posted last night after posting a couple of weeks ago that he had been taken off the ventilator she posted last night that he was moved to a rehab facility and that is just incredible news Webster Garrison um, by all accounts is just one of the most beloved guys not only in the A's system but for anybody who has come through uh, his his pathway in baseball was a, a short time big leaguer with the A's but has managed and coached at various different levels as a manager in, uh, in Class A advanced Stockton and recent seasons uh, and has been in the in the AZL and at other levels throughout the organization, um, but moved into a rehab facility. That is so incredible. Obviously, there's so much unknown as to what coronavirus and COVID-19 mean long term for people, um, but to even take the step to come off of the ventilator uh, and then to move into a rehab situation is such an incredible leap forward. And obviously, we're, we're cheering hard for Webster Garrison and for his family, um, and that was just an incredible uh, buoying piece of news to have gotten last night and this morning. Yeah, and I'm very grateful to Nikki for consistently providing updates on everybody and always adding hashtag Webby Strong. Um, you know, this is a scary time for so many people. And like you said, Tyler, any bits of light that we can get 
are are great and we have to hold them close. So Webster Garrison getting closer, uh, you know, to to a recovery and, and making it to rehab uh, and just being with, you know, with Nikki and getting to be close to one another again. Uh, I think she mentioned in another tweet she hadn't seen him physically since March because, as we know about COVID-19, is that um, when you are recovering in a hospital, it's very limited of who can come in to see you and if anybody can come in to see you to make sure we we don't spread the virus. So them getting to be together was one very positive step and now going into rehab today and making another big step towards a recovery is huge. And we're always thinking about Webster Garrison and everybody out there. I mean, obviously this disease or this virus has touched so many people, both in the United States and around the world. Um, you know, if it's affected you, we're thinking about everybody who it's affecting. And, and when it touches home with a minor league family like this with Webster Garrison, um, we think about them every day. So we hope you're at home safe and, and continuing to do all the right things and, and listening to experts out there. But um, as people get back on their their own roads to recovery, we're going to celebrate them and, and be grateful that we have them and that they're getting back to full health. And uh, with that, we're going to dive into this week's episode of the show before the show from MILB.com with the third-ranked prospect from the Los Angeles Dodgers organization, pitcher Josiah Gray, joins the show next. As an official partner of Minor League Baseball, Nationwide is here from life's first pitch to the seventh inning stretch. Whether you're looking for protection for your house, car, pet, or small business, Nationwide offers a wide range of products and support to make sure you're getting the right coverage for your specific needs. Visit Nationwide.com for more information on how we can help take care of what you have today and plan for what's ahead. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Mutual Insurance Company, Columbus, Ohio. Well, we are uh, headed back to a Cactus League destination this week, although not exactly the Cactus League, but that's where we find the 67th overall prospect in baseball, number three in the Los Angeles Dodgers organization, pitching prospect Josiah Gray, who joins us from Arizona. And uh, welcome to the show, man. How are you? How uh, It's a strange time, but what uh, what are things like in your world these days? Yeah, it's a strange time to say the least, but uh, things are pretty much the same. They, they're they honestly the same as if I was in spring training right now. You know, in the morning I'm going to get my work in, throwing a lot, uh, working out, and then the afternoons are really to myself, play some video games, um, watch some Netflix, uh, and that that kind of simple stuff. Well, we're definitely going to have to get uh, streaming recommendations and such from you before the show is over because we all need them, Lord knows. Uh, but let's let's talk about uh, just kind of like you said, the, the day-to-day things right now. I mean, uh, it's certainly not what it was back in February and early March when you got to go to Camelback Ranch every day and get your work in there and all that. But what is a, a daily routine like for you with doing that work in the morning and, you know, keeping yourself baseball ready? Yeah, honestly, it just starts uh, around 10 every morning, just going out and throwing, uh, getting the arm loose and throwing bullpens here and there. And then after that, go work out. Uh, We found, me and a couple of buddies found a little local gym that we're going to. And then after that, we kind of just wrap up the day uh, and come back and chill. We're normally normally back in our rooms by, let's say, 1. So, you know, the, the days are simple, really similar to spring training. 
this, uh, you know, mid-May, late May now, by this point, you probably would have been in, in Oklahoma City or, uh, you know, who knows, maybe in Los Angeles. And instead, we're all in this this halted pattern at this stage. Um, but before all of this, you got a chance to, to be in spring training and to get, um, you know, those experiences uh, under your belt, a non-roster guy. Uh, you're at Camelback Ranch. You're, you're with a team that's had so much success over the last several seasons, obviously, at the big league level. What was that like before everything shut down? Um, when you're going in, you know, day after day and getting a chance to be a part of that, what was spring training like this year? Yeah, it was uh, definitely eye-opening experience being around some of those guys like Kershaw, uh, Bueller, Price, to name a few. But yeah, every day was honestly, I would I would try to pick up every something new every day and try to learn from how those guys went about their their work and how they kind of made everyone around them better and being a younger guy being 22 years old with some of those older guys it definitely was an uh an experience to where i was like uh, i'm like really the younger guy here but you know i kind of just had to mesh in and make sure i was on the same level with them and continuing continuing to learn and pick up as many pointers and tips as i can while i was there and uh yeah when you are in that spring training this is your second with the dodgers um, you know, obviously being in major league camp is a, is a different atmosphere, but what were you focusing on? What were you trying to do to show not necessarily major league readiness, but as somebody who got nine appearances last year at double a, you're trying to round off your, your major league or minor league resume even, um, what was the focus going into this spring for you? I think just getting to show that whole staff and everyone, um, within the, the Dodgers organization that I can continue to do what I've been doing and, and continued to progress with everything that I was doing last year and not to show it was just like a, a rare uh, year. Uh, so just going out there every time I was on the mound, whether it be a bullpen or a lobby P or in a game, just remaining consistent, throwing strikes with all of my pitches um, and also kind of the behind the scenes stuff, just continuing to learn from everyone because of how many years of experience they've had, how many things they've seen, uh, just just kind of those things to where every day was a day to get better, whether it be on the mound or just something in the clubhouse. You know, the the little things always added up for me uh, in my experience in big league camp. And how has that carried over into your work now? Because it's one thing to show off to, in front of a lot of coaches. And I'm sure the Dodgers are having conversations with you and making sure you're working on things and, and maybe giving you a plan. But how did you carry you know, what you were working into the spring into this pause time where, like you said, now you're, you're going through bullpens, you're going through normal routines in the morning, um, but there's just no games to show off how far you've grown since last year? Yeah, there's definitely a sort of edge missing because I'm a guy that thrives off of having a hitter in that box. So that kind of definitely stunts the growth a little bit, but also just kind of stepping on the gas pedal and knowing like when, whenever we start and whatever the situation around us starting is, I want to make sure I'm ready and I have a sense of urgency to go out there and compete and succeed um, because I know everyone's getting their work in right now. And this is a really important time because we're going to start and it's going to be really quick. So I just want to be ready for that and, and know that I've put myself in the best position possible to be an asset for the team whenever they need me. 
Yeah, and kind of walk us through what what a bullpen right now looks for you. How many pitches are you throwing? Are, are you going max effort? Are you mixing in breaking balls and change-ups? I mean, what exactly do those sessions work like? How, how often are you doing them in, in any given week? Yeah, so the bullpens are going about two times a week now. Uh, I took a couple weeks off right after the shutdown just because it was kind of a unknown period for us and it was really tough to find a catcher. But right now I'm, I'm firing about 30 to 35 pitches, throwing all pitches, um, just getting everything within the zone, staying consistent, trying to maximize everything out of it I can uh, and just remain, remain comfortable on the mound because I know when we start, we're going to kind of be thrown right into the fire. So I want to make sure I'm in a really good position and gotten off the mound a lot. So I'm comfortable whenever I have to face hitters and, you know, get guys out. Josiah, let's talk about your history a little bit because you've got one of the coolest stories of any prospect in baseball right now. Uh, a formerly a two-way guy um, coming out of high school, not a ton of offers. You go the D2 route, and you're one of those guys at the D2 level who I think, especially by your junior year, there were probably a million D1 coaches in the country thinking, why didn't we offer that guy? Um, you, you're a shortstop. Uh, I know early on in your career, you know, freshman year, kind of trying to figure out your way as both a, a position player and a hitter and also on the pitcher's mound. Um, but then sophomore year, junior year, uh, you play some summer ball, you go to the Cape League and blow up between your sophomore year and junior seasons, uh, and then you switch to the mound full-time. When you look back on your your three years of school, let's go back to your freshman year at LeMoyne. If you were to talk to yourself yeah. back then and say, not only are you going to be drafted, but over the next two years you're going to do enough to end up as a second-round pick, what would that freshman version of Josiah Gray have said at that point? It's <laughs> a great question. He would uh, he would say you're crazy because uh, my fresh <laughs> my freshman year, uh, you know, it was a really tough time on the mound for me. I, I think just because that transition from high school to college is something that a lot of guys you don't really know how to prepare yourself for that. So <clears throat> for me, I was going out there and I was getting hit around a little bit, and you know that was different for me because in high school I was a really good pitcher. Um, albeit not throwing too hard, but I was still getting guys out. So getting up to college and, you know, getting hit around a little bit definitely was like a really uh, shocking uh, experience and made me want to just get better. Because I remember uh, my freshman year, we so in the NE10, we always have a playing game for the championship weekend. So that Tuesday game always leads into the weekend. So uh, I came in for the last couple of innings in that Tuesday game, really close game. I ended up giving up the game-winning run, and, you know, that sat with me. And really being a – I think it was 18 years old at the time um, – made me want to just get better. And I remember my coaches told me, like, hey, don't let this, like, culminate your career. You, you're going to be a lot better than this, and you're going to come back from this. And, you know, safe to say I did uh, the next two years – but I, that's, you know, that's one of the moments my freshman year that definitely sits with me and kind of propelled me to want to get better on the mound and, you know, become a better baseball player in general. 
your sophomore year, uh, you put up an ERA of 0.63. Uh, you convert 10 saves. You throw 14 and a third. And I saw an interview you did in spring training where you talked about how you'd basically go out and play short seven or eight innings and then just get asked, all right, go warm up real quick and come in and close out this game. What was, uh, from the, the practice and preparation standpoint, I mean, how much time on a day-to-day basis you're going out and obviously you're taking ground balls and taking BP and all that. How do you balance that with, mm-hmm. oh, by the way, you're also our closer. Like, how did you mix all of that and trying to be the best that you could at all of that stuff and being really successful at it by your sophomore year? Yeah, uh, sophomore year was definitely a different year because of being the starting shortstop and closer uh, for our team. So my, my practices, honestly, would be I would get to practice, I would go hit, I would go uh, field ground balls, um, make sure I'm okay on those areas for the day and I would touch the mound just a little bit though just to make sure the arm is loose and I can feel the slope of the mound and everything again but you know my sophomore year was it was really more focused on the hitting aspect and pitching was kind of second to the hitting aspect just because of I knew my important the most important role for me at the time was going out and playing nine innings of a good shortstop and putting up good at-bats for the team. And then also, if we were in a winning position, to go out there and be able to throw strikes and get us three outs so we can win the ball game. So, <clears throat> you know, I, it was kind of like, yeah, I really love to pitch, but I also got to make sure I'm ready for shortstop. And it, it was just interesting to look back on that and kind of see how it's all uh, made me the player I am today. Yeah, and when we look at what the modern game is, we've talked about this in the past on the show of, of the new two-way designation that's coming to the majors. Obviously, Shohei Otani is the poster boy for that. Brendan McKay, there are a couple other guys who maybe are able to do that. As somebody who's done that at a lower level at college but still performed it week in and week out, what do you feel like is the feasibility of a two-way player going forward at the upper levels, at, at the majors, or just the future of baseball in general? I think it it could add an exciting element to the game of baseball because we always think of that kid that can go out there and uh, chuck, like kind of like high school, he can go out there and chuck six, seven innings and go two for four at the box. And, you know, that's exciting part of the game because you get to see him uh, a lot more and he gets to impact the game a lot more. So I think if that can be – like replicated at the pro ball level and the major league level, like we're seeing with Otani and McKay, then I, I have no uh, interference with it because I think it would just continue to bring excitement for the game and get a lot more guys opportunities to impact the game, whether it be on the mound or with the bat. But I think it's something that a lot of organizations are probably going to be working on for the future, just because there's a lot of guys that can offer a lot in both and not just be keyhole to one thing. And, and reviewing your Twitter account the last couple of weeks, it seems like you were somebody who watched the last dance, just like a lot of the country. You even retweeted <laughs> something about uh, Michael Jordan hitting 200 and double a baseball after not playing for 14 years <laughs> is insane. You were a guy who hit not too long ago. You've seen, you've also seen double yeah. a in, in last year in Tulsa. What do you think you could hit even as somebody who didn't, you know, take a 14-year pause from the game. What do you think you could hit in Double A right now? Uh, I will. I will say if I hit 
226 in Division Two baseball, I don't think I'd do too hot in Double A. <laughs> so I would say, <laughs> I would say 180 with about two home runs. <laughs> All right, there you go. Hey, that's that's 180 better than both me and Sam combined would be able to hit. So that's nothing to sneeze at. Yeah, and two more home runs there for sure than us combined. Um, but one thing I wanted to touch on too, since you know we're talking about two way player, but one of the reasons why you have stuck as a pitcher is because of your fastball. Every scouting report I've read about you brings it up, and, and one thing that always stands out is the movement you have with that pitch. Uh, what it what is developed with that to make it you know such a weapon for you because fastballs usually they're just establishing pitches for guys but for you with that movement it's a really good out pitch as well take us through that where that was when you were first drafted to where it is today uh just comparing it between two periods honestly i've just started to learn more uh, with all the data that's thrown at us and learning how i'm unique as a pitcher because you know i'm a shorter guy so everything I throw is going to be a little bit more <clears throat> deceptive to the hitter just because the re- release point is going to be a little bit lower. And, um, yeah, just learning, continuing to learn and know that while, you know, hitters hit fastballs the hardest, it's something I can throw more just because of the movement I get. The vertical break or the horizontal break they talk about is a little bit more than average as compared to, uh, you know, a standard pitcher and also with the high difference that also plays into it. So, you know, they always told me um, from spring training last year on just, hey, this is what your fastball does. Continue to use it. Know it's a really good pitch. Know it's going to take you a long way. That doesn't mean discount the other stuff, but that also means kind of just enjoy that and understand it and make sure that you're ready and you have this pitch uh, kind of know that it's a really good pitch and it's going to take you a long way. Josiah, one of the kind of crazy things, you get drafted by the Reds, uh, you go out and have a, a fantastic debut season in that organization with Greenville, a 2.58 ERA in the Appy League in 12 starts. Um, but you didn't go to a spring training with the Reds. You're traded uh, following that season, and you end up in the Dodgers organization by the start of 2019. Um, and especially to be such a, a highly touted guy and a guy who had so much success uh, in your debut season, to be traded so quickly, did, was that weird? I mean, how did that feel to you when that happened? And Sam and I always ask this question of prospects who have been traded because it's very unlikely that anyone mm-hmm. in any normal job will walk in one day to, you know, working at the UPS store. And it's like, OK, we traded you and now you work in Buffalo, New York. Like it doesn't really happen to the rest of us. <laughs> what was that like for you? I think that was actually a really uh, surreal experience just because of how it all happened and how quickly it happened uh, and also not thinking it would happen. Uh, it was really something that you don't think of when you get drafted that you're going to be traded six months later. Um, I honestly didn't think guys could be traded that early, but you know, it's part of the business and it's something that guys have to um, understand. So it took me, it took me a little bit to understand that and really think about the ramifications of the trade and what each side was getting. But, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful that the Reds drafted me where they did and took a chance on me and, uh, I'm glad I got to perform in my rookie season to, you know, for the Dodgers to want to take me uh, in that trade. So, you know, it's it's still been crazy thinking about it, how 
two years ago. I was in uh, Lamar, at Lamar College and playing Division Two ball, and now here I am, a top prospect within the Dodgers organization. And uh, to say the least, it's been a crazy two years with the trade and everything going on. But you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want it, want it to go any other way. It's such weird timing, too, because if you were a guy who was five years into your career, there's a little bit more normalcy, I would imagine, with the the professional calendar. But you get traded in December, and so you go through a a six-month period uh, in the Reds organization. Then you're traded in December. How does a new organization communicate with you and kind of get you into the fold? Because it's not like you're, you know, the middle of a season, you're going into a new clubhouse, you know your teammates. Like, I would think there's probably some, some anxiety or some awkwardness with, like, you've been employed by a new organization for two months before you really get to meet anybody or be part of that. How did that all go down? Yeah, I was definitely anxious uh, just because of being drafted by the Reds. You know, I'm already going out there anxious, not knowing anybody with my whole 2018 draft class. And then six months later, it's kind of like I'm a part of the Dodgers 2018 draft class, but I'm really not because, you know, they didn't sign me. So it was definitely like I had to meet two new groups of people within that draft class and also meet a whole new front office, meet a whole new player development staff. So going into that spring training was definitely a lot of things thrown at me to where I had to remember names really quickly. I had to understand this is what, this is how this is ran. This is what this is. And even, um, I had a couple of buddies in the organization at the time and they told me they kind of um, guided me the first couple of weeks. But even then that still made me kind of like realize like I'm really like the newest guy here because I wasn't drafted with these guys. I was just traded here, but you know, they welcomed me with open arms and I received a lot of calls that week after that trade just to let me know that I'm welcome and they're excited to have me and they couldn't wait to meet me and, you know, kind of start working with me. So um, it was it was a really anxious time, and it's still crazy because, you know, I'm still meeting new people and getting around new groups, but it's something that's a part of the game and that we probably all have to go through at some time. And since you've joined the Dodgers, uh, I mean, the Dodgers continue to have one of the deepest minor league systems in baseball right now. You look at the top of the organization between Gavin Lux, Dustin May, yourself, Kbert Ruiz, you know, your downs was in there for a while and proved his stock enough to get traded a second time. What, what about being in the Dodgers organization has allowed your game to take the next step? What's something they've worked on with you specifically uh, that you feel like's rounded out your profile? Yeah, everyone knows this organization is, is top-notch, probably the best organization in baseball. And I think they do a great job in just getting the most out of you, no matter if you're a first-rounder or a 40th-rounder. And I say that to a lot of guys, but, you know, I, I really mean it by saying they're going to put as much as as much in for you as they will the next guy. And it's kind of all up to you to run with it and use all the things – given to you to try and become the best baseball player you can be. And I think with seeing the success with the guys at the big league level, uh, Gavin Lux, Dustin May, Gonsolin, and so on, year by year, really reinforces what they're doing at the minor league level because you know it might not be the easiest route to the big leagues, but you know when you get there and you're cemented there, you're going to have success because you've grinded and you've dealt with a lot of other things that 
guys in other organizations that might be a little thinner at the big league level might not have had to deal with, but you've gone through that and you've improved to the level that you can make it to the big leagues with this club. So just knowing that and understanding that is, is part of the process here. But I think everyone knows that the, the player development over here is, is second to none. And they do the most for guys, no matter who you are and where you come from. And speaking of it being such a loaded system, uh, a lot of that prospect talent is up near the top, and obviously the major league roster is loaded as well. But one thing we keep hearing as we potentially get closer to baseball here is the roster situation. It it could inflate to as many as 30 players on the active roster and then a taxi squad of maybe 20 more beyond that. How much are you paying attention to that news and being somebody who was a non-roster invite in the spring and potentially another non-roster invite to spring training too – how much are you trying to envision yourself and where you could fit under these new potential rules? Yeah, I'm, I'm following it just as close as anyone else in my shoes. You know, I want to be a part of whatever these new plans are, whether it be non roster or taxi squad or whatever it be, I want to be thrown into the mix with those guys. So that's kind of to the point where now my preparation gets me in the door to whatever those situations may be. So I'm following it just as closely because I want to be there. And I think continuing to put the work in and showing that I deserve to be there will uh, kind of force their hand to make the want me put there. Uh, so, you know, I'm going to keep working and hopefully we hear some good news and we get some agreements and then we get uh, that roster starting to format, format itself and hopefully I'm included in there. Josiah, a couple more for you. We'll get you out of here. Um, you gave a, a really good interview in uh, in spring training talking about just, you know, kind of your background and growing up and uh, and being somebody at this stage of your career. And um, you were asked about who you look up to in baseball. One of the guys you pointed out is Marcus Stroman, um, who, you know, whether you are a, a Blue Jays fan or uh, somebody who maybe wasn't the tallest person growing up or whatever it is, there are a lot of reasons to love Marcus Stroman. Uh, and you pointed out that you wanted to kind of work alongside – you know, his career to show that African-American pitchers can have long and really good and really productive careers in baseball. And that he's been kind of inspiring to you in that way. What does it mean to you knowing that, you know, you're 22, you're a double A last year, um, this year, potentially when we get baseball back or next year, you could be embarking on a lengthy uh, and very good big league career. You get to be that guy for kids who are coming up young African-American players, uh, and there's been so much discussion of that in baseball in recent years, of how to get the that community back into the, the numbers that it was in baseball uh, a couple of decades ago. What does that mean now that you are sort of on the doorstep of maybe being one of those guys for kids who are coming up playing games? I think that, that means the world to me just because of knowing my situation and then knowing that African-American kids aren't playing baseball as much as they used to. Uh, And knowing my love for the game and how much this game has meant to me throughout my childhood and the times now, I know that this is a game that a lot of other kids can enjoy. So I I just want to continue to grow the game as much as I can. And I think Marcus has done a great job with that, um, with having those teams in – in New York and building a brand and building an apparel line, just sort of trying to make sure that kids that are like him or kids that are not as 
tall as him can have an opportunity and have something to root for in their career. So I think having all of that and also knowing that kids that look like me have a chance and they can enjoy this game just as much as I have makes my life kind of have purpose outside of what my, what I'm doing on the mound. So that's something I really want to just continue to focus on and make sure that I can be a role model for these kids in the next generation, whether I have a one year career or a 10 year career, I want to make sure that these kids have someone they can look up to. And it can be a guy like, Oh, wow, this can be us, you know, division two kid, but now I can become a viable major leaguer and kind of just those sort of things are something I want to give kids uh, a sort of piece of hope so they know that they can continue to work and hopefully their dreams will come true and they can continue to do the things that they want to do in this game. That's awesome. Mm. Yeah, and when you talk about that stuff with Stroman, um, when you do have kids that look up to you, whether it is just being short or whether it is being your road, what would you hope is the one thing they kind of latch on to or many things? I mean, what, Not what that we're saying you're short, of, by the way, because you're 6'1", and if you're short, then I'm short, and I don't think I'm that short. Right, yeah. <laughs> short for a pitcher um but not short for all of us out here um but what aspect of your game or or your style or or any part of what makes you a role model would you hope to pass down to to kids who are watching you wherever that is texas league pcl major leagues i think just my whole story can can be something that people can look up to and like knowing that wherever you come from as long as you continue to work hard and get in front of the right people and continue to not leave any stone unturned and continue to just honestly grind every day, then things can happen for you. Like for me, I going into my college career at Lamar and I had no idea I would be playing professional baseball and be a top prospect and all these other things that have happened for me. You know, I just wanted to go out there and play college baseball and yeah, I wanted to play, Uh, professional baseball but didn't know how didn't really know what tool I had to offer to a professional team and then kind of just reinforcing my ability to want to work hard and continue to get better every day things started forming for me um, ever so quickly and here I am now so I just want people to know that like wherever you may be right now that can all change within two to three years as long as you continue to work and continue to grind every day and build that good base because people are going to be watching and they're going to want to give you a shot. And all you need is all you need is one shot and, you know, just roll with it and make, make your dreams come true. Awesome. Well, we'll end on, on two fun ones. Uh, Josiah, we, Tyler brought up before that we were going to need to get some streaming recs from you. I, I won't yep. necessarily ask for that quite yet, but what <laughs> one thing I want to address is last night or two nights ago, rather you tweeted out that uncut gems didn't just, disappoint i think anybody who's seen that movie knows how awesome it is especially with a sports yet, connection so that's good to know because i really uh, there you go. just added it to my list there you go but here here's my yes. actual question is it's one of the most stressful movies i've ever watched in my life for many reasons and i won't spoil anything but on the mound as an athlete as a pitcher as you know a, a human being but we'll focus on baseball what's like the baseball moment that's akin to what Howard Ratner has to go through in that entire movie what would you compare it to as a <laughs> professional pitcher man i would i would say the the biggest moment i've been in yet that kind of made me feel as anxious and 
kind of like a little pit in my stomach was uh, starting game one of the Texas League Championship Series this past year. Uh, that was in front of I don't know how many fans in Amarillo, but that was really something I've never experienced before. And kind of I can relate that to what he was feeling in the movie because that movie was just every moment kind of like just shaped the next moment. So relating that back to the championship series is something that I can kind of relate to in that like pit in your stomach and knowing that every pitch is the biggest pitch and you want to get as many asses as you can as quick as possible. Just, yeah, I would say those two kind of compare and uh, we're, it's crazy. It's all crazy. No, for sure. And that, that makes a lot of sense to me. And that kind of rolls into the, what the final question I have is, and this is something we've been asking so many guys, you know, the last couple of weeks as minor league baseball is on hold and we don't know uh, when it will come back. Uh, I'll, I'll ask you the same thing. What is your favorite minor league memory so far through your two years of your career? Man, I would say I have a lot, but uh, I'll throw it back to Tulsa again. Uh, when we clinched, um, to go to the championship series, you know, we beat a really, really good Arkansas team with, honestly, they'll have nine plus big leaguers on that team. Eventually, uh, you know, we went into that series and that whole year, uh, the guys were telling me that Arkansas would beat them up and we took them to five games and ended up winning on our home field, a, a day game and really hard fought battle. And you could tell that both teams were really fighting tooth and nail to win this game. But once we won that game and uh, clinched that to go to the championship series, that really was like, wow, kind of like, this is what it feels like to win. And, I mean, it is double-A baseball, but, you know, you try to enjoy it as much as you can. And that was probably the best moment in recent memory because of, you know, we had a lot of guys from – uh, rent, that started in Rancho and made it to Tulsa at the end of the year. I know I started in Great Lakes, made it to Tulsa. So you had a lot of guys that didn't start the year with the Tulsa team, but, you know, they're all really important pieces to clinching that championship series. So that really uh, is a really memorable moment for me. I wish we would have pulled it out against Amarillo there in game five, but, you know, that was something I'll never forget because of how crazy and how um, tight – tightly knit we were in trying to win all those games that is awesome josiah gray is the third ranked prospect in the los angeles dodgers organization in baseball's number 67 overall in the top 100 coming into 2020 and uh, a guy who we very much hope to be seeing on a mound sometime soon and uh josiah we kept you for so long and we can't thank you enough for for taking all the time man this has been outstanding and uh and best of luck staying relatively cool i know you said before we started recording it's going to be like 107 there this week in arizona so don't melt uh and uh and we'll see you on a mound sometime soon man thanks for the time absolutely thank you guys for having me which copala de versan hat is the best now is your chance to crown the champion of all 92 copa caps via the greatest corra tournament presented by echo outdoor power equipment the recently launched campaign provides you, the fan, a chance to win exclusive prizes from Echo and select official on-field Copa hats while celebrating the cultural contributions of Hispanic communities through culturally relevant on-field identities. Be sure to join in the fun and vote at MLB.com contests. 
Checking in with Benjamin Hill on this week's episode of the show before the show. There is a uh, a new edition of uh, Did You Know Facts about a league in the minors, and there's some really good ones. It's about the Southern League. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But, Ben, uh, how you doing, first off? Hey, I'm doing pretty well, Tyler. Thank you. I'm, uh, you know, routines develop no matter what the circumstances. And every time I talk to you guys, I'm in my bedroom, and not only in my bedroom, I'm st- like staring out the window. And uh, I can report that it's a beautiful day in Dittmas Park, Brooklyn, as I stare towards uh, Cortelli Road. I'm between. Well, okay, I'll, I'll I'll leave my address at that. I don't want any. <laughs> <laughs> I was um, I was going to give the cross streets and everything, but I'll save that for another time. Yeah, we don't need uh, people flocking to your address, Ben. This is a time of social distancing. We don't right, need that. Good point. I um a few months ago, a couple months ago, I was listening to uh, an old Brooklyn Dodgers broadcast. We may have even discussed this in this segment at one point, but I was listening to an old uh, Brooklyn Dodgers broadcast on YouTube, and Vince Scully welcomed some people to the ballpark, and then just gave their address over the radio. It was like this. Fa- it was a game from you know 1953. It was like this family from blah 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 Atlantic Avenue, and I was like the whole the whole address you give out on the radio. I feel like you get sued for that now. It, it was a different time, you know. Very that is, um, you know, not not to go too far on a tangent. I recently read a book of uh, by Ernie Pyle, who was a prominent uh, World War II era reporter. Yeah. And he embedded with the troops, and throughout this book, and a lot of it's collected from the newspaper writing. You know, he'd mention his conversations with various troops and be like, you know, George Jensen from Indianapolis, you know, says hello to his parents at 247 7th Avenue. <laughs> and then throughout the whole book, it was just giving people addresses. And I just think it was a, a different thing then. Um, Fascinating. I guess a more open time. Yeah. Now we're too closed off. We yeah. don't share our addresses. Let's start a movement where we just tell everyone where we, we live all the time. post our addresses all the time. You, yeah, you go first, Ben, <laughs> and then I uh, will happily follow. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, there's a, a new edition of uh, League Fun Facts up on the site right now. Southern League is up this week from Ben, which has, uh, Ben's been rolling through uh, all of the minor league circuits. And the Southern League, one fact about each team. Uh, there are a couple in here that are my favorites, but one that I did not know about at all, which is the Pensacola Blue Wahoos. Uh, their ballpark looks over Pensacola Bay. Um, it's one of the most beautiful backdrops in minor league baseball, but it also evidently is home to a giant cargo ship that has a really interesting story behind it. I had no idea about this story. Yeah, I think I'd known it, and then I forgot. But, you know, I'm doing these stories every week, starting AAA, now work, working my way through AA. So on Twitter, you know, I kind of try to give people a heads up, hey, here's one coming next. And on Twitter I said, hey, you know, Southern League Facts, if anyone wants to suggest one. And the Blue Wahoos on their the team account got in touch with me and said, hey, you know that, that we the gigantic cargo ship uh, um, in the Pensacola Bay, you know, right behind our ballpark. It's owned by uh, a company owned by Jeff Bezos, you know, the richest man in the world. And uh, it will eventually be used to, to um, not not for the launch. These rockets will be launched from Cape Canaveral, but this cargo ship that you can see from the Blue Wahoos ballpark will be used uh, for the landing in some way. You know, I, I, I'm not too into aerospace, but uh, yeah, pretty strange Blue uh, Oregon, Blue Origin, which is like his his space exploration company, because Jeff Bezos is the closest thing we have to like an actual uh, weird movie bajillionaire who does things like own space exploration companies. Um, but yeah, Blue Origin owns the company. They will launch rockets from Cape Canaveral, and then they will land them, or at least attempt to land them, on this ship 
that is like neighbors with Blue Wahoo's ballpark. Yeah, I think when they do land these rockets, it won't you know, be the, right the there. Ship will have, <laughs> the ship will have sailed to presumably it will be somewhere, somewhere else. Yeah, probably it won't be just a mere, uh, you know, in, in uh, visible from a double A baseball stadium. Although that would be kind of cool, if maybe a little dangerous. And Ben, you have one of my favorite ones in here as well. Of, of all the fun facts you've thrown out there about any league so far, basically just because it's a technicality. Everybody, we talked about this with Josiah Gray last segment. Everybody's been watching The Last Dance. Everybody knows the episode or just the year in which Michael Jordan played double-A baseball. But you're here to tell us that Michael Jordan never played in Birmingham. Please explain. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, when, when it came time to choose a Birmingham fact, I, of course, thought of Michael Jordan, a uh, member of the 1994 Barons. Uh, I did not watch The Last Dance, but I'm on Twitter, and I know so many other people watched it. I know you guys watched it. And so I was like, i got to come up with a Michael Jordan fact, but something that isn't too obvious uh, since Michael Jordan's on the brain. And I was just kind of thinking, okay, what ballpark did he play at? And I was like, oh, Ray, he played at Hoover Metropolitan Stadium. And uh, what was that ballpark? It was located not in Birmingham, but in the nearby suburb of Hoover, Alabama. So the fact is, you know, if you want to win a bet on a technicality or just be one of those know-it-all jerks who knows a little more than everyone else, uh, Michael Jordan never played a baseball game in Birmingham. He played all his games with the Barons in Hoover, Alabama. And one other one you you throw in here, too, is uh, obviously this was supposed to be the inaugural season of the Rocket City Trash Pandas and the the Trash Pandas joining the Southern League, moving from Mobile uh, being the Bay Bears. But you throw in a Bay Bears fact here. Um, Just in general, how are you going to remember the the Mobile Bay Bears and their history at uh, Hank Aaron Stadium? Well, you know, in in the story, uh, you know, I put in a fact about – how they had the same the Mobile Bay Bears for 22 years. Uh, their entire history had uh, the same bat boy, the legendary Wade Vatican. Um, you know, but if the question is how I will remember the Mobile Bay Bears, uh, for me, I will always have a very distinct Mobile Bay Bears memory, and that's that my first ever, uh, you know, legit. I'm finally a full-time writer for MILB.com. My first ever trip, my first ever on-the-road assignment. The uh, you know the visit that launched everything for me. Uh, oh man, I'm just getting anxiety thinking about it. But it was the opening of the Hank Aaron Childhood Home and Museum uh, for the Mobile Bay Bears home opener in 2010. And you know Hank Aaron grew up in Mobile, so the Bay Bears who play in Hank Aaron Stadium had actually taken Hank Aaron's childhood home, relocated it to the grounds of the ballpark, refurbished it, and opened it as a um, a museum on the grounds of the ballpark. And so they had, uh, for this home opener, to open the Hank Aaron Childhood Home and Museum, Hank Aaron was there. Um, you know, Bud Selig, who was the commissioner at the time, was there. Bob Feller was there. Um, Ozzie Smith was there. Willie wow. Mays was there. Um, Bruce Souter was there. Uh, Ricky Henderson was there. And I was the only national reporter, and I just had a flip cam and didn't know what I was doing. And uh, it was just insane, and it was the first time I ever did anything on the road. And uh, so that's my <laughs> Mobile Bay Bears memory. And, uh, oh, my goodness, I was so nervous. I had no idea what I was doing. But I interviewed Ricky Henderson. I tried to interview Reggie Jackson, and he put his hand on my flip cam and pushed it away. And at the time, I was pissed, and I was like, man, like, what a jerk. But I think it's better to have a Reggie Jackson was a jerk to me story because, you know, 
that's very on brand for, for Reggie Jackson. Um, you know, I got to be on the same airplane with uh, Ricky Henderson. You know, I didn't sit near him, but I remember just being like, my goodness, I'm on the same airplane with Ricky Henderson right now. If this plane goes down, it's going to get national coverage because Ricky Henderson's on it. So. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Um, there's some, uh, some really good facts in the story that are up on the site right now. Um, Ben's got another piece coming to, to the site. We've been talking for the last few weeks about teams that are really trying to get creative to stay engaged with their fans. And, um, obviously we're, you know, living in a, a situation where states and different localities are operating under different circumstances and such. Um, but ballparks, uh, across the country are at least partially, uh, opening from the standpoint of to go food and movie nights and all that kind of stuff. And you've got a story on Daytona coming up in this vein, correct? Yeah, you know, that's uh, kind of my job right now is you know, doing some look back articles, uh, fun facts and that kind of thing. But I'm also trying to just cover what teams are doing during these weird times. And last week I did a roundup article of the the sort of things that teams are starting to plan. And this week I'm just focusing on one of those things because it was up to this point. It's the biggest event that's been held at a minor league stadium this year. Uh, the Daytona Tortugas held a movie night at the Jack the Jack being their home of Jackie Robinson ballpark. And uh, they created all these uh, 10 by 10 socially distanced, uh, socially distanced seating areas on the field uh, ended up with a little over 600 people in the ballpark spread out on the field, socially distanced. And they watched uh, the movie 42, you know, which is a good choice uh, for a movie to watch in a minor league baseball stadium, but it's a very obvious and good choice for the Tortugas because they play at Jackie Robinson ballpark. And uh, the ballpark was named for Jackie Robinson because he spent 1946 spring training in Daytona beach. And there's some scenes in that movie that take place in Daytona. So pretty cool to be on the field at Jackie Robinson ballpark, watching the movie 42 and watching, you know, specifically scenes taking place in Daytona Beach, you know, when you're in the ballpark in Daytona that's named after him, you know, full circle, very meta, uh, but very cool thing. And it was just cool talking to the team and uh, just kind of figuring out how they did it, because guarantee, obviously, we're going to see the Tortugas will do more, more movie nights. But as restrictions start to loosen uh, and there's no minor league baseball being played, you know, teams are right now just thinking about, you know, we're event, you know, we're, we produce events. That's kind of what they do even when there is baseball. They produce events around the baseball game, but now it's just the events themselves. So teams really have to start thinking about uh, how they can get fans into the ballpark in a safe way. And a uh, quote-unquote socially distanced movie night is uh, you know, a good example, and I'm sure we'll see more of them. And Ben, we'll end on a little bit of a somber note, but uh, you kind of reported this week that Bluefield superfan Henry Belcher had passed away um, when you got to go to Bluefield as part of your tour through the Appy League. Uh, it was pretty clear that Henry was maybe one of the most vocal minor league fans I've ever seen and one of the most entertaining uh, with the way he just ribs umpires and all that. But um, what do you remember about Henry Belcher from your time meeting him and what can you share about him? Yeah. You know, when I go on these uh, ballpark road trips, um, you know, it's really important to me to, to cover the, the, the fans, um, the longtime fans, especially in small environments like the Appalachian league and, you know, Bluefield Blue Jays, small ballpark, classic ballpark, Bowen field. And before I even got there, people said to me, Oh, you've got to talk to Henry Belcher. Cause anyone who'd been to a Bluefield game knew Henry Belcher. He was this guy who sat alone in the stands and just yelled the whole game. And, you know, he's a Bluefield boy born and raised. And, um, there's an article that came out in the Bluefield, uh, daily telegraph today. And it talked about how, um, 
you know, it, it talks about the Bluefield Blue Jays front office saying that, you know, Henry Belcher lived for baseball and kind of feeling sad that, you know, he died at a time when there was no baseball. And, you know, who knows if those two things are connected, but, you know, just one of those super fans in a small town who was always at the ballpark. He was called Double Out Belcher, Henry Double Out Belcher, because that was uh, his unique name for a double play. You know, he would want the uh, blue, the Bluefield team to turn a double out, a double play. He yelled at the umpires throughout the game. And if you went to a game, you were going to hear his voice. So just one of those iconic characters in an iconic league, in an iconic ballpark, uh, you know, the Appalachian League, the Bluefield Blue Jays, the type of uh, person who, you know, when they're gone, you're not going to quite see fans like that uh, going forward. So I think it's, it's good to... Uh, you know, take a moment and remember the guys like Henry Belcher. And I was sad to see him go. Uh, you can on Twitter. I've uh, reposted the story I wrote about him in 2016, or just Google Henry Double Out Belcher, Bluefield Blue Jays. And all of that stuff uh, up on the site and up on Twitter right now as uh, Benjamin Hill. Another week with uh, some great stuff for us at milb.com. And uh, stay safe and stay healthy, man. And we'll. Uh, Hopefully not post your address anywhere, but we'll talk to you next week. If you do have legions of fans outside, let us know uh, what they think. I will. You know, and if everyone wants to – well, no, okay. I, I'll, I say things I'll, I'll probably regret. I'll just say um, – <laughs> just hit me up on Twitter email. Don't come to my apartment. But uh, I appreciate everyone who engages who engages with my work, and uh, I would really do appreciate it. And eventually I'll get out of this apartment and we'll get out of our apartments and we will go live laugh and love together in the world at large we will i like that idea thanks ben thanks guys our minor league baseball writer spotlight this week uh we find andrew batterano who we welcome back to the show what's going on buddy how are you Doing all right. Thanks for having me again. Absolutely. It's uh, always fun talking to you guys. This is a, a great story that is up on the site right now um, about a, a two-sport athlete who most people are not probably aware of as a two-sport athlete, and it turns out not just two sports, but uh, NHL Hall of Famer and legend Doug Harvey, it seems from reading Andrew's story, played like every sport that man has ever invented and was really good at all of them, uh, and then happened to be just like one of the greatest players in NHL history. Uh, this is a pretty awesome some story that you uh that you came up with for the site yeah kind of uh for the younger listeners kind of reminds me of vince from recess where he could just pick up anything and just play it and just be awesome <laughs> at it but uh yeah funny enough darren one of our editors was reading a book about scotty bowman and funny enough there's a tidbit about doug harvey playing minor league baseball and then we did some digging into it. it's like wow he was really good for the brief time that he played seems like it would be worth writing about and it was just uh one of those just kind of coincidences and we looked into it a little bit more so let's talk about doug harvey obviously uh an nhl hall of famer um a legend with the montreal Canadiens, played for a lot of different teams the new york rangers st louis blues the detroit red wings um but now 65 uh, passed away at 65 years old now is looked back on as being just that guy, that great hockey player, uh, inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 1973, but did play minor league baseball and uh, was a guy who really, it seems like if he decided, no, I want to go the baseball route, probably would have been a very good big leaguer as well. Give us kind of the, the genesis of his baseball career going along with being a phenom in hockey. Yeah, um, kind of an interesting story because he had grown up playing fast pitch from what I read. So it's, you know, more softball, but he was really good. Catches the eye of 
the owner of the Ottawa Nationals, later Senators, not the hockey team, but the uh, Border League team, and kind of joins in. But this is right around the same time that he's starting his Montreal Canadiens career. So he was kind of playing both at the same time and had to work around, you know, the camps at the end of September, October from baseball season. And obviously if the you know, Canadians made it to the playoffs, kind of interfering with the beginning of baseball season. So he was able for, you know, those four years and two full seasons really to kind of work around the beginning of what became one of the best NHL careers of all time and have a really good baseball career out of it. It's just, I don't know if playing these two particular sports would happen today uh, at a professional level. It's, it's tough to say. And uh, one of my favorite things about this story that, that you bring up is when he was first coming up, he used to ha- hold his hands six inches apart on the bat uh, and was still mm-hmm. a career 344 hitter. He eventually moved to putting them together to develop power and went from four homers to 14 homers. Obviously, it worked out. But, um, yeah, talk to us about what you found out about what he was like as a hitter and why he was able to be so successful, you know, something carrying from the blue line essentially to uh, to the, the baseball diamond. Yeah, that was also one of my favorite tidbits reading through a profile on him in a Canadian magazine just about how – he changed his whole bat. Like I'm imagining kind of like a Ty Cobb style where he has his hands so far apart, uh, but then he puts it together. And I think to your question about just why he was so good at hitting in general, um, I think when I talked to Scotty Bowman, he talked about Doug's eye-hand coordination. It was just kind of this next-level thing that he had that he was able to do, whether it was baseball, hockey, or golf. He talks about this time they went golfing one off-season, and he, you know, did better than 100 and for someone who doesn't play golf full-time that's just pretty impressive so who knows maybe he could have uh golfed full-time and done amazing at that as well but uh yeah i think it's just a, a lot with that kind of just great eye and coordination that he was able to you know do so well against professional pitching you slipped in hey. there um, that you got to talk to Scotty Bowman, who is uh, a legend beyond legend in the game of hockey. Is the winningest head coach in NHL history. He's won 14 Stanley Cups as a player, a coach, and an executive. Um, and it seemed like we were talking before we started recording that uh, getting in touch with him, he seemed really excited to get a chance to talk about Doug Harvey. What was that experience like talking this story through with Scotty Bowman? Yeah, he was uh... – a very interesting guy to talk to one of the you know nicer guys I've ever really had an experience talking to he just genuinely loved talking about Doug Harvey and you know hockey in general he had all these really great stories about him obviously mostly you know about their time in hockey together uh but he just had all these like great things that he remembered and he always like would go back yeah I didn't really know much about his baseball career but then he was like I think he played in the border league from like 46 to 50 and I was like yeah that's like spot on I'm impressed that you know that for a guy uh you know he didn't like super uh he didn't really follow his baseball career super closely he just seemed to know every little detail about everything and just like looking back at it it's like wow like for a guy that's in his 80s just knows everything about everything he's an encyclopedia of knowledge and it was just really cool to pick his brain about one of the more fascinating athletes uh you know of the last hundred years 
And, and you keep bringing up the border league. That's obviously the league he played in for Ottawa uh, at the time known as Class C. How would you kind of define what the competition level of the border league at Class C league is? Is there maybe a modern equivalent in your research that you could think of? Uh, based on what I was reading, it's definitely a little bit on the lower end. I guess it would kind of be closer to uh, what we know as like Class A now. Uh, that's like my guess. Obviously, I didn't see what, you know, I couldn't see any video or anything of what the competition level was like, but just based on what I read, that's kind of what I was reading because those professional teams like the Red Sox and the Braves and things, the Cardinals were the other one. Um, that did offer him professional contracts. It seemed like they wanted him to go to the AAA level. So my guess is that it was more toward that, like, you know, Class A level of play, which is, you know, for a guy that wasn't, you know, just playing baseball his whole time, you know, he had a, another sport where he was fantastic at and probably devoting more time to that. Uh, I think that's still impressive. Yeah, and let, let's say uh... – Doug Harvey, you know, which is this is going to be tough to say about a guy who was a native Canadian and a native of Montreal. But let's say he had never seen a pond before, never skated up, only knew baseball. Uh, given what his resume was, and like you mentioned, got, getting offers from the Braves, the Cardinals, and the Red Sox, do you think he could have been a major leaguer? Hard for me to say, just never having seen the guy play in person. But based on what I've read. And, you know, talking to Scotty Ballman and just just different things that I saw, I mean, I think he would have had a legitimate chance. Just a guy that had so much talent in a lot of different areas and had that kind of eye-hand coordination to take him to that level of the NHL and for him to hit so well in the minor leagues, I think he would at least have a fighting chance to be able to do it. Uh, Hard for me to definitively say, like, yes, he would have been a successful major leaguer and would have been a Hall of Famer, but based on all accounts, if there were a number of teams looking for him, I think the potential was obviously there. Pretty great stuff. Pretty amazing story. Doug Harvey is kind of the the reverse Tom Glavin, if you will. The story is up on the site right now at MILB.com. Andrew Bataferano, you can find on the tweets at uh, Andrew at Bat with an extra T at the end. And uh, good to talk to you again, man. Great stuff as always. Thanks again. I uh, appreciate it as always. Minor League Baseball and Feeding America have teamed up to raise funds for local food banks and to honor those risking their lives on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic. For every $10 donated to Feeding America, a Minor League Baseball team will donate one ticket to a local hero. May 31st is the last day to donate. So head to MILB.com slash community first to donate today and help us make a difference in our local communities. Final segment of this week's episode of the show before the show. Big thanks to Josiah Gray, who you can find on Twitter at jgray with an extra Y and an underscore at the end. Benjamin Hill on Twitter at Ben's Biz. Andrew Batterano at Andrew at Bat. Great stuff from them as always. And uh, Sam has this week's prospect fun fact presented by Nationwide. Yeah, so this week's Nationwide Prospect Fun Fact, uh, I held off on mentioning this week's stream at the beginning of the show. I'm not going to hold off now uh, because, you know, I got to, uh, take advantage of this as much as I can. For those of you who watched, Evan White came through for me uh, in this battle between AL prospects and NL prospects. Last time we did it was Julio Rodriguez. This time it's another Mariners prospect and Evan White. So I wanted to come at you guys with an Evan White fun fact. Um, as many of you know, Evan White signed a major league deal this offseason. He was going to skip right over AAA, B Seattle's starting first baseman. And this is a big reason why. If you looked at his AA Arkansas 
numbers last year you might think okay that's that's a pretty good hitter but nothing here screams to me he's gonna be a slugging first baseman in the typical mold of a first baseman but look at his splits and you can see why the mariners are a little bit more excited in 44 home games at arkansas which is a really big pitcher's park in the texas league he hit 260 with a 309 on base percentage and a 408 slugging percentage that was a 718 ops he only had five homers compared that to his road stats so he had five homers at home he had 13 on the road he slugged 408 at at home he slugged 556 on the road uh his ops went from 718 at home to 940 on the road when you put him in a more neutral place or even in a hitter friendly place his numbers take off and it shows why a lot of evaluators and the mariners especially think he's going to be more than just a really good defensive first baseman there is a lot of value in that bat um you know whether he's going to be a 30 homer player someday i don't think we're going to see that but somebody who can reach base at, at a good clip um, somebody who can put the ball in the gaps, get his home runs, bring some offensive value to match what we've always said is gold glove potential at the cold corner. Um, this is a big reason why to be excited about Evan White. And we saw it in that stream the other day when he hit that two run homer uh, to put my team ahead and give them the lead. So Evan White, if you ever go to his stats page, just dig a little deeper, dig into those splits and know on the road in the Texas League last year, he was an elite hitter. And uh, with that, we'll say goodbye for this week's episode of the show before the show. Uh, thanks for tuning in, hanging out with us. If you've got questions, thoughts, comments, concerns, you can uh, get in touch with the show. Podcast at MILB.com. Uh, Sam Dykstra is on Twitter at Sam Dykstra MILB. I am a Tyler Mon. And uh, that's it for Sam. I'm Tyler. We'll talk to you next week. 